BBC Home Service. Here is a special bulletin read by John Snag. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. On the morning of the 6th of June 1944, families across Britain sat in their living rooms around the wireless, listening to this announcement from the BBC. Journalists embedded on the front lines had given hints of paratroopers landing in France through the early morning, but any doubts about the great Allied invasion dissipated with that 9.32am broadcast from John Snag. It was probably the most significant broadcast of the Second World War, because it marked, whether it was realised at the time or not, the turning point, the beginning of the end. D-Day was the first day of the Normandy invasion by British, Canadian, American and other allied forces to liberate Western Europe from the grip of Nazi occupation. It would be the largest and most ambitious amphibious invasion in the history of warfare, codenamed Operation Overlord. May 1944 initially was the chosen month for the launch of the operation, but difficulties in assembling the landing craft forced postponement until June. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the American supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, had chosen June the 5th as an unalterable date for the assault. But as the day approached, bad weather set in and he altered it, reluctantly calling a 24-hour postponement. As the weather broke on the 5th, Eisenhower gave the command to go. Immediately, an armada of 3,000 landing craft and an equal number of naval vessels, some carrying men and supplies, others designed to bombard the coast, began closing in on the Normandy coast. That night, 822 aircraft carrying parachutists or towing gliders roared overhead to the landing zones just beyond the beaches. They were just a fraction of the air armada of 13,000 aircraft that would support operations on D-Day. The coast of Normandy in France was divided into five beaches, codenamed Omaha, Utah, Gold, Juno, and Sword. Every unit that landed had a very clear target and a job to do once they'd got ashore. 19-year-old Patrick Thomas, a Royal Navy radio operator, who on the 6th of June 1944 was aboard a landing craft, like thousands of other soldiers, preparing for a day that would change the course of history. His landing craft, LCH-185, arrived at Sword Beach at 7.25am, delivering the first wave of Royal Marine commandos. Through the day, his craft went back and forward, delivering infantry onto the French coast. In the weeks that followed, Patrick remained on the landing craft, delivering soldiers across the channel. Eventually, his vessel moved to what they called the Trout Line, a defensive line of landing craft designed to stop German surface vessels like their legendary e-boats or human torpedoes from breaking through and attacking the Allied naval effort. But on the 25th of June 1944, Patrick's landing craft struck an acoustic mine. Patrick was one of only a handful of survivors, his boat went down, with most of them trapped on board, friends and comrades. The trauma of the experience never left Patrick in the decades after the war. Then in 2015, Patrick met a young archaeologist called John Henry Phillips, who offered a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity 
Inspired by their unexpected bond, John promised Patrick they'd search for the shipwreck of his landing craft that sunk off the coast of Normandy in those history-defining days of 1944. So, this is our anniversary episode of Dan So's History Hit, and this year we're bringing you an emotional story of a devastating war, an unlikely life-changing friendship, and a quest to honour a wartime home and a family lost over 75 years ago. Enjoy. John, how did you first meet Patrick? I met Patrick when I volunteered on a charity project that took D-Day veterans back to Normandy. And when I got to France, I was left off the rooming list of the project and Patrick uh, had a spare bed in his little hotel suite. So I sheepishly knocked on the door and said, can I please come and stay? And he kindly took me in and yeah, kick-started this whole adventure. Patrick, do you remember young John knocking on your door? He was a bit different in those days. But we all change, don't we? We do. He got nowhere to live, you see. <laughs> so he came knocking on the door. So, yeah, so he could stay the night. <laughs> that's right, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> was he a good roommate? Yes, he was all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you became friends yeah yeah we spent uh the week together going to all the parades and the cemeteries and um went to um lay a reef at his friend who died in the sinking of his ship at his grave and yeah we just had a great time stayed in touch and we met up again a year later for the commemorations again did you enjoy going to the commemorations oh yes but i don't go now I'm going on 98. Tell me how you came to volunteer to join the Navy. In pre-war years, I had an older sister and two other brothers. There were three boys. And we knew with the rise of Hitler and other dictators that war was going to happen. And of course, my mother realised this and she had three sons, and she knew those three sons would be at war in a very short time. And of course, on the, I think it was the 3rd of September, 1939, we declared war on Germany. And of course, then they immediately started to bomb us. My brother had already volunteered, my oldest brother for the army, my younger brother, he joined as a regular. He was shot through the mouth driving a tank. And of course I volunteered. I wouldn't want to have served in peacetime, only in the war years. How old were you? By 17 initially. I volunteered in 1941. I wrote to Stone in Staffordshire. I was living in Shropshire. And uh, they said to wait until I got the call-up papers. And I did. I had the medical and the, for the Royal Navy. And um, that's how I started my career off. And because I was into wireless telegraphy, I entered as a telegraphist. So when D-Day occurred, 
I'd been on constant wireless watch for a long time. I went on the upper deck and I saw us approaching Normandy, the beach. And I remember clearly at one point the beach was completely blacked out and the noise was tremendous. So we put these marine commandos ashore and we joined what was known as, the, I think, the pipeline, guarding our eastern flank from the Germans coming in. Can you tell me more about the, the landing craft you were on? What I saw was a shoreline and these beautiful houses. Everything was peaceful. And I thought, what lovely houses. And then, of course, as we went to the beach, then everything opened up. And I think there were about five or 7,000 ships on a 50-mile front stretching from east to west. And, um, and when everything opened up, it was something that nobody will ever witness again. And the noise was terrific. Were you in the first wave? Yes, we were in the first wave, 6.30 in the morning. A lot of planning went into it, of course. Was there lots of German fire? The Germans replied. I remember the rattle of machine gun bullets and the hull of the craft. I can't remember much about what the Germans doing, but I saw our troops land and I admired them. And these funnies, the tanks with big chains on them, exploding mines on the beach. And of course, I saw the initial landing. I was on the upper deck. I saw these flail tanks and all the action on the beach, on our sector. Got to realise it was a 50 mile front and we were on the extreme left on Sword Beach. After the initial landings, we withdrew and we joined the, um, what should they call it? The trout line. That's right, the trout line. Guarding our eastern flank from the Germans coming in. And so that's what we were doing. We were there for three weeks, and I think on the 25th of June, 1944, a mine blew us up. And do you remember hitting the mine? I was knackered. I was so tired. I'd been, I'd had no sleep. I don't know how the soldiers got on because we've been working for a long time, watch and watch about. Two hours on, two hours off. So when we moved to the trout line, I got a deck chair out and lay on the forecastle and fell fast asleep. And of course, the next thing I knew, there was this tremendous explosion and I was covered in blood and oil from something in my head. And she started to turn to port gradually, and I realised I couldn't stay on board. But 
I thought for a second, can I take these boots off? And I knew I didn't have time. I had no choice but to get in the water, which I did. And of course, there were a lot of badly injured men panicking about to die. And uh, I managed to get away from the scene as she turned over and there she was upside down. I managed to get away and a Matlow on a LCG, Leningraft gun, threw me a line and pulled me inboard. But obviously it trapped a lot of people down below. And one incident, a very brave man, there was a, a hatch. He went down this chain ladder, and when he got down into the wireless office, there were the crew of wireless operators, some dead, some injured, some panicking, knowing, and the companionway door burst open, and the sea came rushing in. And he managed to get up in time before she turned completely, taking the rest of the crew with her, young men. So I was very fortunate. Did you tell John this story when you were in Normandy with him? Oh, yes. A few times. That's, that's right. When you heard this story, it must have triggered something in you. Yeah, it just amazed me when Patrick told me this story that it seemingly had kind of been forgotten, it had kind of been lost. And I think that's because most of the crew went down with the landing craft, 35 people went down that day. And there just seemed to be this sense of just almighty sadness to Patrick's tale. And when did you decide to sort of keep going, pursue it, take more of an interest? About a year later, I'd say, uh, the more we spoke, I used to come down and see Pat and talk to him about Normandy quite often. And yeah. It just kind of came from that. And then we were in Normandy again a year later and I had this idea to put this memorial up in Leon Sumer, which is where Patrick was near on D-Day. And then that kind of spiralled into this idea to look for a shipwreck. And yeah, it all went from that. Why did you want to find the shipwreck? It was my respect for my lost shipmates. So John, what was your plan? You came up with a mad plan, what was it? Yeah, my mad plan was to try and find the wreck of Patrick's landing craft, LCH 185, because we knew it went down on the 25th of June, somewhere off Normandy, and Patrick, when we'd spoken about it in the past, he thought it would be quite fitting to sort of find the place where his friends ultimately ended up. So I promised Pat I'd try and find the wreck, and I learnt to scuba dive, and then it all just kind of spiralled from there. Big snowball effect, and. Yeah. You're listening to Dan Snow's history here. We're talking about hunting the lost landing craft of D-Day. More coming up. Hi there. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal in Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing, to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. 
We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to hear a bit more about how the underwater archaeology went. So we, we come down to the seafront here at Eastbourne. We're looking over the channel now, over that horizon. That's where you donned your uh, waterproofs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I learned to dive and I launched a shipwreck expedition and I headed out into the English Channel about five miles off from leon sur in Normandy. What led you to go from volunteering, hanging out with wonderful people like Patrick to actually leading an expedition to find a ship? Um, a lot of mid-twenties bluster, I think. A lot of energy and a sort of a mad idea to try and do this thing for my friend um, to bring a bit of closure to an old tragedy, I suppose. Did he feel that it was unresolved, that he really wanted to find the shipwreck? Yeah, there was definitely this sense that he had always wondered where his friends ended up. There was no place to commemorate them. Only four bodies were ever recovered from the shipwreck itself. So I think he really welcomed the idea of having that exact spot where he knew he could go over the wreck and lay a reef at sea. And where did you even start? You weren't a diver. Where did you start? No, yeah, I, uh, I had to learn to dive, which was um, quite a strange sensation. I learned to dive in a quarry in Leicester in the freezing cold. And then from that, I got a dive team together and went to Normandy. And funding as well. You're being very modest, but I mean, it's quite a big operation. <laughs> yeah, uh, where well, we crowdfunded quite a lot of it. We were very lucky. There was a lot of supporters that wanted to see Patrick get his closure as well. And that really uh, did a lot of good for us. And like today, I mean, it's a, this is allegedly a summer's day and we're down <laughs> here. It's pretty grim. It's very, very windy. Uh, there's a swell running. 
Normandy is not an easy place to no. conduct amphibious operations. No, no, and it wasn't an easy place to dive, especially when I'd barely done any diving at all. I think the dive team were a bit uh, worried about that. Yeah, it was crazy. I had five days to do it and a storm brought my dives down to just the one single dive to go down to this wreck. Yeah, it was very much down to the wire. Come into the buoy and use the wind as a break. You'll see that the rise up represents the target. It just jumped up from, that's the highest point we've seen so far. We were desperate to get in the water and uh, go down, dive it, see what we could see. It was going to be a disaster if we hadn't found anything. Ready? Go! So you'd use sonar to build up a picture of where there might be points of interest, and you went and did some proving dives on that. Yeah, so we were lucky. We had um, a team who'd done their own sonar expedition a few years before and they'd kind of mapped the whole of the Normandy coastline and they were able to give us some targets and one of them looked to be quite a good fit for the wreck we were looking for but the only way you can ever find that stuff out for real is to go down there and actually see it for yourself and take the measurements and do the archaeology. And so you overcame the bureaucracy, the weather, yeah. the, anything to do with boats. It's always a nightmare yeah. but you actually managed to get in the water so what do you see when you're down there? It was amazing. I went down there the sensation was instantly different because I'd only ever dived in a quarry. It sounds silly, but just going diagonally down a rope, oh, yeah. you know, the current pulling it away, that, that from, from the start was crazy. And then, yeah, got down there and the wreck was in an absolutely terrible way, uh, both from the mine itself that had blown it up and also from the scrapping of the wrecks that had happened afterwards. Oh, really? Other salvage has been done yeah, there? Yeah, oh, over the decades since. So it was in a really bad condition, which obviously made doing any sort of archaeological surveying quite hard but there was sort of a beauty to it in a way because there was a lot of life down there there was a lot of fish down there it was sort of a living wreck in that sense and that was quite surreal I suppose it was uh, it was amazing yeah what did that survey tell you was it was it a landing craft it was definitely a landing craft yeah yeah it was definitely a landing craft that had been there on D-Day taking part in the trout line afterwards and like Patrick said it had turned over so that it very much looked to be uh, the right landing craft and so Patrick was thrilled by this, was he? Yeah, he was really thrilled. And when I came back up and was able to pat him on the shoulder and say, I went down there, Pat, you know, I went down there on behalf of you and we've been down to the bottom of the seabed to bring the story to a close. He was totally overcome with emotion in a way that he'd been emotional throughout the search, but this was like a different sort of emotion. It was almost like he kind of lost the oxygen in him. You know, he was like overcome with emotion, I had to actually walk off for the first time. John. I did it. You've done had to get on with it. Yeah, good, good. Good though. I was quite taken aback by how much like a, a boat it actually is, you know. You can still travel down it. Um, it's big. Yeah. The images don't really do justice to how big it is. It is big down there. It's peaceful, it's peaceful down there. Never I never thought the sort of thing would ever happen. Not to me. Do you feel like us being here and finding uh, the target and diving it and you being here, is that any sense of a full circle? It is in that sense. I never thought I would react like this. It's a lot to take in, eh? And he was able to lay that wreath, which was very important to him, wasn't Yeah, it, it was very important and we were really lucky because the local lifeboat crew came down with this huge orange lifeboat, took Pat out, spent a lot of time kind of going back and forth 
making sure that we were right over the top of this wreck. Yeah. And then Patrick was able to go to the water and lay a reef over the edge. And he was able to read the poem, uh, the No Roses on a Sailor's Grave poem that he'd not been able to read the day before because he was overcome with emotion. And yeah, I laid some roses and it was all a very uh, wonderful moment. So it's sort of mission accomplished. Yeah, well, yeah, it seemed it at the time. So what happened next? So what happened next? Well, I also, uh, I promised to build Patrick a memorial. So then I spent a while doing that. We unveiled a memorial in Lyon-sur-Mer and some veterans came and there's beautiful permanent commemoration to his crew on the shore. And then in the months that passed, we were able to do more archaeological uh, investigation of the data that we brought back. And it, while it was a landing craft, it was a landing craft gun rather than a landing craft headquarters, which was Patrick's craft. So it, as it turned out, it wasn't Patrick's wreck. But that didn't seem to matter to Pat, I must say. For him, the closure had already happened. People kind of taking an interest in that story, bringing in the families. We found the brother of Jack Barringer, the friend that he lost on the day. He came to the memorial unveiling. And there was definitely a sense that just being remembered was almost finding the wreck. And I know that sounds sort of... Uh, well, you found a, you found a D-Day wreck. Yeah, well, we identified a D-Day wreck, yeah. And, and that was, uh, I mean, that was amazing. It added something to the archaeological record, absolutely. I could say it had been very moving for him. Have you identified the number of the wreck you did find? Well, it was between three. There was a lot of wrecks that went down in that area, obviously. And it was between three. The one that seemed most likely was called LCG 1062. I mean, like I say, the wrecks down there are in such bad condition. Um, so it's the most likely scenario, but... You became really good mates with someone who's much, much older than you. What was that experience like? It was strange. We just got on so well. And I think my own granddad had died a couple of years before and he was a World War II veteran. The more time has passed since the search, I sort of realised I was kind of like making up for that lost time, you know, not asking my own granddad enough. And I sort of really enjoyed that opportunity to sit with a guy who'd taken part in such an amazing moment in history, you know, the first wave at Salt Beach, and to be able to sit with him over a cup of tea in the afternoon and just hear his stories was something that I'd, um, that I'd neglected to do myself in my own life. Perhaps that's why we got on so well, I'm not sure. He was lit up when he walked into the room. <laughs> it's amazing, so he's obviously incredibly fond of you. Have you been in touch with him during lockdown? Yeah, we FaceTime. Um, he's quite good at that sort of thing. Normally the phone is a little bit too close to his face, so you kind of get a view of his nose. We do chat and he remembers the shipwreck search and he recalls it fondly. And it's nice, it's nice to know that, you know, that's what he's been thinking about during such hard times lately. It's inspiring a young person like you could make such a big exhibition come together. What's next? Have you got other plans? Well, people have brought me different ideas to look for different things, but I'm well aware of how much work went into looking for the wreck of LCH-105. So at the moment, I've been concentrating on doing a Romani archaeology in the New Forest, uncovering those tales. That's a forgotten part of English history, which has been really nice and a nice calm thing yeah. to do yeah, after. a little bit steadier. Yeah, yeah. What about going back out to look at those D-Day wrecks and maybe even identify which one might be Patrick's? Yeah, I mean... I'm sure I could be tempted out to do it again. I mean, if you want to get your, your dry suit on, Dan, we'll get down there and give it another go. Oh, but. Unfortunately, I can feel myself getting tempted. <laughs> well, against, against my that's better it. judgment. It grips you, doesn't it? It yeah, grips yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> After all these years, 74, very nearly. Mm. And they brought it all to the surface now, I think, but don't fit really deep. 
Oh, dear. Anyway, I'm so pleased you've done this. And it's great to think that all you people have taken such an interest. I never thought it would. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was John Henry Phillips and Patrick Thomas. John's book about their story is called The Search. You can watch a documentary in which I interview both these two wonderful gentlemen, and we feature lots of footage from John's search for the ship on History Hit TV. You simply follow the link in the notes of this podcast, you head over to History Hit TV, and you can watch it all. You get first two weeks for free, so go and check it all out. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.